0: Welcome to the Pathologist Cut podcast. This RCPA podcast highlights the critical work of pathologists and the integral part pathology plays in medicine and healthcare.
1: Welcome to the new podcast for the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. Each month we will have a new guest on and we will talk in depth about something happening in the pathology world. I'd like to um, welcome Paul Griffin, um, who's the Director of um, Infectious Diseases at the Mater Health Services in Brisbane. Thank you very much uh, for giving us your time today.
0: Thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to be here.
1: Thank you, Paul. Now, we've been in COVID for a year now, and it seems like quite a long time, a year. Do do you remember where you were when you first heard reports about COVID-19? And can you explain how that changed your world?
0: Yeah, look, it's, it's fascinating to reflect on uh, what's happened since we first became aware of uh, of this pandemic. I don't remember exactly where I was, but I certainly do remember fairly early on hearing about uh, what was happening over there in in China. And um, I think while it was obviously fascinating and I was really interested, I guess it did have the, the hallmarks of something that could potentially be be bigger and while of course we didn 't uh, fully appreciate how much bigger it was going to get we, we know the world is such a small place these days that uh, you know something like that was never going to be geographically restricted. so I guess there was a, an element of fear and you know, certainly when I reflect on my experience from the from the past twelve months. Um, You know, having worked in vaccine development and infectious diseases for over 10 years now, I I guess my skill set is very suited to being very busy and that's certainly been the case. I didn't anticipate exactly how busy I would be and I certainly didn't anticipate my role in the media where I've done sort of more than uh, 10,000 interviews with an audience of a few billion now. And, you know, I I guess... I take that as a, an opportunity to hopefully try and uh, give people some reputable information given that the amount of misinformation that's out there. But, you know, in many ways reflecting it, it feels like we've only been doing this for a short period of time and really we're just getting started. And so, you know, as I say, it's been amazing to see how far we've come and, you know, seeing the vaccines uh, now approved in this country is, is really exciting and I think there's a real sense of accomplishment by a lot of people with uh, how well we've controlled things in this country.
1: Now you mentioned the, the um, imminent rollout of the vaccine in Australia. Can you just sort of tell us a little bit about what's involved in developing a vaccine?
0: Obviously, we could have a whole session on on how vaccines are developed, and you know, I guess how that's been done a little differently uh, in this um, in this instance. You know, the main thing to say, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, is that we haven't skipped any of the usual steps. I mean, what normally happens in a, in a vaccine development is some clever scientists spend a long time, perhaps a lifetime, working on some t- technology in a laboratory, often having gone through many hundreds or thousands of candidates before they get to one that they think will actually uh, be able to progress through clinical trials. We need robust animal evidence. to to make sure it's obviously uh, safe to give to people and likely effective. And when we have that, then there's a very rigorous regulatory process, again, to make sure we're not exposing any of our volunteers in the clinical trials to any risk. Um, Often that regulatory process can take many months, um, and then we start the, the phase one clinical trial and we do our clinical trials in phases. And I think a lot of people have been talking about these phases without fully appreciating that the difference between them and, and what they're for. And you know what we do is we start with a low number of very healthy people in a very narrow age range with no medical problems so that we can, again, make sure the vaccine's predominantly safe, but also looking effective before we progress to Phase 2, where we expand the numbers, we start to look at how it's working, but we still focus on safety, and that's where we might expand the type of people we'll include in the trial, such as the elderly, for example, to start to see if it's working in that. But we only do that after we've proven it's safe in the first phase. And then we get to the Phase 3, where we're hearing so much information at the moment, because that's where the, the main contenders are all at the moment, And that's where we really expand to huge numbers. Probably the minimum is 10,000, but we're hearing about 30 and 40,000 in these trials. They're often international. And we still look very closely at the safety. We still look very closely at laboratory tests. But that's where we really want to see if it works. And, you know, they're the the percentages, the numbers we're hearing about now, which is actually, you know, stopping people getting symptomatic infection um, from this virus. And and so that's what we're looking at now. But the the main thing is we don't stop looking there after these vaccines are licensed or approved. We have what gets called phase four or post-marketing surveillance or post-approval surveillance. So we continue to monitor these vaccines in each and every person that gets them. And, And so if we did see any effects that were one in a million or, you know, perhaps now even one in 100 million, we would pick those up and report those. And, you know, we've seen some of that reported in the media recently where some people unfortunately succumbed shortly after receiving the vaccine, and it was clearly determined that that was a trajectory that, uh, that they were on regardless. But, again, that was reported and reviewed by appropriate regulators. So there's a lot of work involved. Um, a lot of regulation and then obviously a really rigorous approval process and again we're hearing a lot about that in this country it's the TGA and there were calls for them to hasten that or bring it forward because it was approved in other countries but again they didn't do that and what their role really is, is to make sure they've got enough data to ensure that the vaccine use in our country is the right thing to do, um, you know, in our population, in our environmental conditions, for example. So, you know, you can see how this can take a very long time. And what we've done is not skip any of those steps, but there's been some some overlap. For example, the, the scaling up of manufacturing, you know, that's a huge gamble that normally we don't contemplate until after we have the phase three data. But with a lot of the lead candidates, they set that up right at the outset. So, when they do have the data from their studies that the vaccine's safe and effective, they're ready to supply hundreds of millions, if not billions of doses. And so my role in this, um, I've been the principal investigator, so the person overseeing uh, the phase one clinical trial for four vaccines, um, three of which are... Uh, still looking very promising. One of those is Novavax, which we're hearing a bit about. That's one that our country has a supply agreement for. And one of those, unfortunately, was the University of Queensland vaccine that ran into a slight issue whilst looking really safe and effective in terms of some... Uh, diagnostic test interference and I guess what that highlights is again is how how rigorous our process is that you know that was uh in many people's opinion a small hurdle but it was deemed that uh it was too big a, a challenge uh in terms of getting these vaccines out there so that wasn't um progressed so you know we have such a rigorous process that unfortunately some of these vaccines and and there are now four really promising candidates that made it into clinical trials uh, that have been abandoned. So I've been overseeing those four trials directly. And I'm also in discussions with probably around 10 other vaccine manufacturers just to help them along the way with their clinical program. And, and hopefully when those vaccines get to the clinic, I'll be uh, overseeing those clinical trials as well. And uh, I know this is uh, becoming a bit of a lengthy answer, but you know we, we've seen some amazing vaccines that have been approved. Um, and so we're in a really good position, particularly in this country. We we'll probably have three options, but now, we need to keep working on vaccines to address ongoing challenges or or subtle limitations in some of these vaccines, whether it's uh, new strains or method of delivery or, or stability or longevity of the immune response or transmission blocking capabilities. There there are lots of other factors that we can uh, continue to improve on. And so, you know, vaccine development for COVID is is going to continue. And as I say, that puts us in a really good position.
1: That's a huge answer you've given. um And this vaccine program is different from any other vaccine that's been produced. And and lots of things are happening in, in parallel rather than sequentially, as you say. I presume that's one of the reasons this has happened so fast.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess also it's where we're up to technologically. So, you know, we're hearing a lot about mRNA vaccines, for example, and while we haven't had a licence one of those, that's not necessarily new technology. I've worked on uh, three mRNA vaccine projects in the past, and, you know, unfortunately they haven't progressed to being licenced just yet. But there was some promise with that technology even before COVID. So, you know, obviously in, in this day and age, in this era, where we have access to such good uh, molecular biology. Our, our science has progressed so well that um, you know, we were in a really good position to be able to do this so quickly. And mm. well, I guess the other thing to say, some of the projects that uh, produced some of these vaccines were, you know, we're working in the background for a few years even, um, preparing for the capability to make a new vaccine to a new pathogen. And so, you know, that's exactly what's happened uh, with this. So um, I think it, it was fortunate that our, our science and and medical research had progressed to the point that it that it had that put us in such a good position. And I guess that can be extrapolated not only to vaccines, but also testing and the, the sequencing that we're hearing so much about as well.
1: I've, I've heard similar conversations um, where, you know, 10 years ago it would have taken us a lot longer to identify the, um, the virus and worked out its genotype, etc. cetera. And I presume the same for um, producing vaccines. The technology is, is quite different.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, coming back to that sequencing, you know, within within days or a small number of weeks that, you know, the sequence of this virus was obtained. And, you know, the other part of our success um, or our, our rapid progress with the vaccines has certainly been information sharing. So that sequence was, you know, widely disseminated. And with a lot of the newer vaccine technologies, they really only need the sequence to, to get started on making candidates. So, you know, the fact that it was sequenced so quickly and that information was disseminated and that, you know, a lot of our, our scientists that often have to, um, compete with each other for competitive funding, have been able to collaborate and cooperate instead has, has been a huge part of our success as well.
1: Yeah, and, and so you, you've mentioned this sort of new technology, and one thing that we've become more aware of is the ability of this um, virus to mutate quite rapidly. does um, the technology that we have with the vaccine production allow us to respond to that quickly?
0: In terms of the mutations, I mean, you know, we know all living cells that reproduce are, are prone to errors and, you know, certain uh, organisms are much better at repairing those errors than others. So for example, in humans, we can do that fairly well and when we don't, we, we get things like, uh, like cancer, for example. And, you know, as far as viruses go, this one's actually mutating relatively slowly I guess the big difference here is we have such large numbers, um, so obviously there's, there's more opportunity for that to happen, but also the fact that we're doing that sequencing in many countries essentially in real time. So I guess what we're doing is, is mapping the evolution of this virus Better than I could uh, than we've ever done with any pathogen before. So we're seeing these mutations arise almost in real time and mapping the, the spread of them. And again, that's put us in a, an amazing position where we can see mutations in the areas that concern us and and start to look further at the, the significance of those and the clinical impact and how we'd respond if they if they are significant. And you know that's what we've seen with a number of these new so-called variants at the moment. And the good thing about the vaccine technology is that the majority of the lead candidates can pivot relatively quickly and whether that's to, to change completely or add a second strain. And most of them are, are talking about the fact that that's likely to be able to be done w- within, say, four to six weeks. So it's not like we go back to the start and have to redo, you know, phase one trials and animal studies, for example, that the addition of a second strain um, or pivoting to a different strain, it will be relatively easy. And, you know, even if we don't have to do that for the current new variants that are being talked about quite a lot, uh, it's very likely with the rollout of the vaccine that we will select for or or find uh, so-called escape mutants, where the vaccines will definitely work uh, to a much less degree. But again, we're we're monitoring for that. We're mapping that in real time, and the lead vaccine manufacturers are, are poised ready to to adjust for that if or when we do see that happen.
1: I mean, it must be quite exciting to seeing so much happening, and as you say, real time, and being able to respond to it and make a, make a difference. Um, even though this has been done so quickly when we're talking about the development of the vaccine, people can be really assured that this vaccine, in whatever form it is, is, is going to be safe.
0: Yeah, look, I, mean, I can certainly appreciate that there's some hesitancy out there because I think, you know, one of the challenges we've been navigating is is the minefield of misinformation. And, you know, what we can say with some degree of certainty is the misinformation has spread faster than the virus. And, you know, what the main thing I'd recommend to people is that there's a number of really reputable sources of information where, where people should pay close attention to and, and you know, Realistically, what that really looks like is the federal government and they're mounting an active campaign to let people know where that is. The the state governments and health departments, their general practitioner um that pharmacies, for example, there's a number of professions that will be very well educated on this and and can discuss the pros and cons and provide information. Um, we're seeing so much misinformation shared that that I can understand people's reluctance. But the main thing to say is that this vaccine has certainly got the safety as well as the efficacy data to support its use. We're very confident in our regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, one of the most uh, rigorous regulators. the world and so if they approve something we can be extremely confident that it's safe and effective and as i say we've now seen hundreds of millions of people vaccinated we're not missing any side effects and you know i think there's a lot of skepticism or or conspiracy theorists that that uh, are coming up with all sorts of theories as to why um we there may be um misleading test results or other things and and if you think about it just for a moment fundamentally none of those things make sense you know we've everyone involved here has worked really hard to try and get some some therapies and vaccines to combat this pandemic and you know the the main thing that's going to really dictate how well it works now is going to be the uptake and that's what we really need people to do is to be informed Get their information from reputable sources, and then as soon as they're able, turn up and get the vaccine, so that we can start to see the impact of that on a broader scale in this country.
1: Yes, and um, and so coming closer to the home, the vaccine will be shortly being rolled out in Australia and in a month or so in New Zealand. How do you see that happening here in our um, jurisdictions?
0: Look, it's a, it's a great question and, you know, while it's been fantastic to see the vaccines approved, um, we we now face a, a logistical challenge that's been likened to uh, World War II in terms of uh, uh, distributing the, the vaccine and then actually getting it into to people's arms. And so there is a, a lot of work to be done and, again, that's where we're going to need a, a truly multidisciplinary approach with, you know, everybody who can play their part uh, contributing as much as possible because it is going to be a challenge. What we know the first vaccine that we have is the Pfizer vaccine which is uh, very safe and very effective but does come with a logistical challenge of the so-called extreme cold chain where it needs to be uh, stored at minus 70 for longer periods of time and, you know, talking about technological advances before, there's been some great innovation in terms of the thermal shippers that will keep it stable at that temperature with some, some dry ice for a period of time. But, but given those logistical challenges, the way that one will likely work is it will be uh, administered through larger hubs such as large public hospitals for example and then again because we want to get the maximum impact from this vaccine as quickly as possible there's a nationally agreed prioritization system that uh, is freely available so we're going to start with the people who are highest risk of acquiring the infection and again that's people in hotel quarantine work um, frontline healthcare workers and people in the aged care sector and then we'll expand out to not only people at high risk of acquiring the infection, but people who are high risk of more serious disease if should they acquire the infection. So, for example, in our subsequent tiers, we'll include elderly people and people with comorbidities. So we're doing it in a staged approach, I guess, to to get the most bang for our buck as quickly as possible. And then, as we start to trickle down outside of um, those large hubs, we'll probably start to see more of a community-based approach where there'll be some, hopefully, some contribution from some larger. Uh, private sector um, people, as well as, for example, general practitioners and, and even pharmacists. And, you know, again, I think it's it's going to be a testament to our ability to to cooperate and collaborate, and uh, it will be a truly multidisciplinary approach to, to try and get that vaccine out to as many people uh, as quickly as possible.
1: Thank you. I, I, I note in recent days and weeks that there's been issues in um, Europe and the UK with um, manufacturing issues. Is that likely to be a problem here in
0: Australia and New Zealand. It's likely that we'll see some impact from that at at some stage. I mean, it's great to see that the demand is such that we we are actually seeing some some issues with delivery. And, you know, obviously it's an unprecedented situation in terms of that scaling up of manufacturing. So lots of contributions there, including the the ability to procure uh, certain consumables and and ingredients, for example, and, you know, even things like glass vials, um, you know, the the ability to manufacture things that we need for the end-to-end manufacturing of the vaccine Uh, is obviously challenging so it probably wasn't uh, all that difficult to predict that we'd face some challenges and I I guess that's why in this country we've got uh, so much redundancy in terms of our agreement so a lot of people said well if we've got 25 million or 50 million. Why do we need to have these agreements? That basically, at the moment, I think the sum total of the agreed supply in this country is 150 million. So you know, you know, enough for obviously each person to be vaccinated many times over. But it's it's partly so that we're prepared and have a contingency should we see any challenges with the supply. So you know, Pfizer is obviously going to be uh, delivered to us first. That they have two manufacturing facilities, one in Europe, one in the US. but they are suffering some, uh, some challenges at the moment, meeting that demand. And AstraZeneca, which our initial supply, I believe that's 3.8 million, will be imported into this country. But again, when I mentioned earlier the scaling of manufacturing in parallel to these clinical trials, our vaccine manufacturers, CSL in Victoria, have done a fantastic job of preparing themselves to manufacture this vaccine and have capacity to do so. And are scheduled to manufacture, I believe, around 50 million doses this year. So if there are issues getting vaccine in or with overseas manufacturing, Obviously, we have the contingency for, for basically enough for everybody to be vaccinated, to be made onshore, And then Novavax, our, our next vaccine, again, that we have a, an agreement for over 50 million doses, will hopefully come online a little bit after that. And it is manufactured in a uh, it's different technology. So all three of them are different technologies, so slightly different challenges in terms of manufacturing. And Novavax is made in a different location. So, you know, those agreements, which some people may have seen as excessive, um, were there. So we have redundancy. So the impact of any of those sort of challenges is minimised and, you know, again, we're in a really strong position to, to get everybody in this country vaccinated as quickly as possible.
1: The numbers that we're talking about
0: are just mind-bogglingly large. It's exactly right. You know, if, if we'd um, said this time last year that there would be uh, a number of new candidate vaccines, which the manufacturers would have the capacity to manufacture billions of doses, I think nobody would have believed that. And, you know, again, it, it's just a, a testament to the all the factors we talked about before, but particularly that the funding, but also the the incredible efforts by the the vaccine manufacturers and all the incredible scientists that have supported those uh, those endeavors.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? So in sort of coming to a conclusion, is there anything you, any comments or lessons that you feel we've learned about the global response to this this pandemic?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think we're still learning every day. And again, as, as I mentioned earlier with the application of technology, you know, we're doing that more and more and, and learning just so much. And, you know, I think the ability to, to have so many great vaccine candidates all the way through to approval in, in the period of time we have is amazing. And I think. You know, we haven't quite touched on that so much yet, but testing has obviously been a huge part of the success, particularly in this country, but in other parts of the world. And and so the ability to scale up the, the testing capacity but also the sequencing again as i said is is such a huge part of our success and you know that's what's going to really support our vaccine manufacturers being poised to adapt to to new variants or escape mutants potentially when they arise so you know that, that ability to do that such in-depth analysis of the the viral evolution in real time has been amazing i guess the other thing we've learned is is again what we can do if we if we really focus on a problem really from a global perspective, forget some of the normal um, competitive challenges that we face in, in uh, medical research and science and, you know, to see what we've accomplished is, uh, is truly amazing. I think there are still some challenges that I'd like to see us be able to get a little bit better at. The, the misinformation and communication challenges we're seeing, which does truly threaten to undermine our vaccine Program so with all that amazing science and those those great vaccines, if that misinformation spreads without being addressed, um, and people don't have uh, sufficient uptake of the vaccine, it's not going to do its role. Quite simply, um, I think we've seen um, political issues interfere with how we manage the pandemic, um, and, and you know obviously there are many instances of that around the world, and you know something that I think we need to to be mindful of moving forward. And I, I think even you know at smaller levels. Perhaps many of us face those sort of similar challenges on a on a regular basis, um, and, and I think it's also about, as I said a few times, being multidisciplinary. That you know we need to come at this from so many different angles, and you know there's so much talk about the vaccine at the moment, but we can't take our foot off the pedal with testing and and testing innovation. There's still room to improve despite the amazing efforts that we've done. We still need therapies, and, and again. Perhaps there's not been enough discussion of that and, um, you know, enough praise of the people that are doing some amazing work uh, in that space. And you know, the other thing I'd like to say is that, you know, we obviously learned so much from the, the 2009 swine flu pandemic. And uh, I feel that we're in a relatively good position uh, for the next challenge uh, for the few years after that. But I think we, we did have slightly uh, short memories for a while after that. I think, for example, things like some of our planning efforts had had slowed our our PPE stockpile, our ability to perhaps manufacture and procure PPE in an emergency situation perhaps wasn't where it should be. so I guess what I'd like to say is that we should certainly uh, all be very happy with what we've achieved, but I guess complacency is one of our ongoing challenges as well and if we get well when we get through this, uh, whether it's in a a year or two or perhaps a few more. I guess what we need to do is is heed some of those lessons for the for the long term and make sure we continue to to invest in uh, preparation uh, as well as the science and medical research that's put us in in such a good position.
1: Oh, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you've said, and, um, and certainly I think complacency may be one of our our Achilles' heels. Certainly down here in the Antipodes. Um, hey, Paul, you've been doing this now for ten years. What would you say to a young doctor or a medical student or a high school student sort of looking at, looking ahead um, at, at future career prospects?
0: Look, it's a great question. I guess be open-minded and I guess um, make the most of any opportunities. I, I kind of fell into clinical trials. It was a, an opportunity to help with a project while I was a, a registrar in training and it certainly had me be very busy um, for that period of time but has basically led me to a a whole career in early phase clinical trials now specialising in vaccines that, that that I find just uh, incredible on a daily basis. And, you know, it's not something that a lot of people have visibility over as a, as a potential career option. And as I say, I wouldn't have if I'd uh, not taken that opportunity that, that was offered to me. And, you know, clinical trials, for example, has the potential to benefit so many people, um, you know, assisting people in the development of new medicines and, and vaccines is is incredibly rewarding. And, and the other thing to say is, you know, I, I did obviously, physician training and training in microbiology with the College of Pathologists. And it's interesting that a lot of skills I learned in pathology uh, are applicable on a daily basis to my work in clinical trials and and obviously some of the other work that I do around COVID. So it sometimes isn't uh, easily able to be seen what what you'll benefit from and, and what what benefits you might derive from, from training in certain skills. And, you know, I just have to be grateful for the opportunities that I had and, and the fact that the training that I've had is, has uh, put me in a good position to, to be able to make a contribution now.
1: Hey, Paul, thank you very much um, for your time this morning. Um, thank you very much for putting a plug in for pathology and laboratory testing. Um, we really appreciate um, your skills and um, efforts that have gone into this whole process.
0: You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut Podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Michael Dray. For the latest RCPA updates, make sure you're following us on Facebook and Twitter.